Hello, I'm Leslie Garfa Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on newsworthy legal topics. The Supreme Court recently heard two cases that are likely to significantly change affirmative action as we know it today. My colleague, Professor Emily Goldwaldman, Associate Dean and Professor at the Elizabeth Halp School of Law, joins me today to discuss Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus the University of North Carolina and Students for Fair Admissions versus um, Harvard. Emily, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you're an expert on this, um, both from the con law perspective and the education perspective. I'm excited to discuss this with you. Excited Can you kind of lay us some groundwork, lay out the groundwork for us a little bit? Sure. So we have two different laws that are at issue here. We have the Equal Protection Clause, which applies to government entities, including public universities like UNC. Then we also have Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And that applies to any university that is getting federal funds. So that covers both Harvard and UNC. And so in some ways, these cases really rise and fall together, mm-hmm. even though we have two different laws going on. And the equal, I'm just going to interrupt you to say the Equal Protection Clause only applies to the UNC school because Correct. UNC is a public institution and Harvard is a private institution. Exactly. But okay. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which applies to any educational institution that gets federal funds, prohibits which is every, discri- institution. every institution. Yeah. And that prohibits discrimination based on race. Meanwhile, the Equal Protection Clause has been interpreted as also prohibiting discrimination based on race by government entities. And so far, When it comes to affirmative action, the Equal Protection Clause and Title VI have been interpreted the same way. Like they've both been interpreted to broadly prohibit race discrimination, but in narrow circumstances to allow affirmative action. So let's just talk for a minute about what the precedent was leading up to these cases. Um, The big Supreme Court case that really laid out the precedent was a case called Grutter versus Bollinger, which involved University of Michigan. It actually involved University of Michigan Law School. And that was the case that said that in very narrow circumstances, universities can essentially do affirmative action, meaning that they can take race and ethnicity into account when making admissions decisions. But they laid out like very narrow parameters for when they can do that. First of all, just as a little more background, what the Supreme Court has said in a lot of contexts is that any race discrimination by a government entity triggers what's called strict scrutiny, the highest scrutiny. Like it's almost always going to be struck down if a government entity is treating people differently based on race. That being said, with strict scrutiny, the test is the government entity can do it if What it's doing is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental objective. So in that Grutter versus Bollinger case, the big thing was the Supreme Court said that the educational benefits of diversity, number one, can be a compelling objective, right? So that's one piece of the strict scrutiny test. We had the compelling objective. The goal of having a diverse classroom so people can hear diverse voices in the classroom. Exactly. What's interesting and sort of notable is they didn't rely on the idea of we can take race into account to sort of make up for past discrimination, right? They said like, if the university hasn't specifically discriminated on the basis of race, 
that wouldn't be the justification, but the educational benefits of diversity can be a compelling interest Mm -hmm. that sort of broadly enables universities, even if they didn't personally discriminate in the past, to take that into account. So that was the compelling interest piece. But remember, whatever is done has to be narrowly tailored. And so what they said was certain forms of affirmative action programs can be seen as being narrowly tailored to achieve that compelling interest of the educational benefits of diversity. But what do they have to do? Well, they said narrow tailoring means it's not any sort of like numerical or quota system. It's just that you're taking race into account as part of an individualized consideration where you're taking like every aspect of the person into account. And then race can be one of those things as long as, like I said, it's not getting a certain number of points, as long as it's part of an individualized consideration. Um, They also said that the university should have to show that like they considered other race neutral alternatives, but they weren't really workable. And they also, interestingly, the majority opinion said at the end, like, but this needs to be limited in time. And we're assuming that in 25 years, this will no longer be necessary. And of course, that was back in 2003. So So 2003, let's just do that yet, but we're getting close. (laughs) Yeah. So 2003, that means that 2027 or something, eight. Yeah, although it was interesting. It was kind of vague. They weren't like, this decision automatically expires in 25 years. What they said was, we hope in, it needs to be limited. There needs to be an endpoint. And we hope in 25 years, it won't be necessary. Mm -hmm. And then that was sort of left hanging. But anyway, so that has been the standard. And since then, like I said, because Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause are sort of interpreted in tandem on this, both private universities and public universities have gone up by that and basically thought, yes, we can take race and ethnicity into account in this sort of like individualized, very amorphous way. We can't assign points. We can't say it was worth X. We're never going to say someone got in for this reason or that reason. But it's just like one of the things we'll take into account when we're making our decisions. And generally what universities talk about is like they sort of want to achieve what's sometimes referred to as a critical mass. They sort of want to make sure that they have enough of all different groups so that, you know, the classes have real diversity that there isn't sort of one person who's expected to express the views of everyone in that group because there are multiple people in that group and sort of have Mm -hmm. enough. And of course, there's always been discussion over the years of, well, how do they know if they have enough, if they're not allowed to really be exactly tracking it number by number? It's always been this sort of amorphous thing. It actually dates back, I won't get into it too much, all the way back to the 70s in a case called Bakke, where there the Supreme Court first laid out this idea of, if you're going to do this sort of thing, do it in a way where it's not like absolutely numerically clear what's going on. And it's just one thing being taken into account along with everything else. And nobody really knows exactly why anybody got it. And, and and so when they take, so, so basically what you're saying is that they can take, you know, whether you're a student athlete into account, they can take socioeconomic background into account, they can take race into account. But when we talk about race and taking it into account, and I say this kind of as a backdrop to the Harvard case, what they mean is um, traditionally underrepresented minorities in the classroom, right? That's what they're referring to when they say race? Yeah, typically that is really what they are talking mm-hmm. about. I mean, and you're absolutely right. It's sort of about like, you can take every aspect of the person's background into account. So like the person is from a state where there aren't that many people from that state or like right. they grew up on a farm, whatever it is. But yes, when you're taking race into account, well, why would that be relevant? Yes, typically the idea is it's an underrepresented group. And so as part of making sure that the overall class and campus 
is diverse and it represents America and people are being exposed to all sorts of different types of people and viewpoints, yes, typically what you're worried about are people who are underrepresented and you want to make sure that there are enough of them there. Okay. All right. So that's so all now the background. These two cases. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now fast forward to these two cases, Harvard and UNC, and both of them involve similar issues. First of all, they both really involve the threshold issue of should that case, Grutter versus Bollinger, be overturned? And should the Supreme Court say, no, these sorts of programs don't pass strict scrutiny? Like, we're not going to use the Grutter test anymore. Number two, even if Grutter remained in effect in both cases, um, the plaintiffs are trying to say, well, Grutter isn't really being followed anyway, because like in both cases, the universities could be doing more to follow race neutral approaches. And Grutter said that part of narrow tailoring meant you had tried all these race neutral things and they didn't work. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in the Harvard case, um, there's this allegation that Harvard has been discriminating against Asian American applicants, that part of how Harvard decides who to admit is when admissions officers review the file, then they give rank ratings to different candidates. And the argument is that Asian candidates get rated worse sort of on soft things like personality and that there's sort of discrimination infecting the process. Okay. So that's one thing of like, you're not even doing Grutter exactly the way you should. But the bigger issue is they're, they're really trying to say, get rid of Grutter, these sorts of programs, even if they do what Grutter says, they should fail strict scrutiny. Okay. Universities shouldn't be able to do this anymore. They shouldn't be able to take race into account. So they can take everything else into account, but not race. Well, that's the weird thing. So then, I mean, the Supreme Court justices pressed them on them that a lot. And they were like, well, what do you mean? Like, suppose you write an essay about your family background. Are you saying that if your family background is X, the university can look at it like, oh, your history of going to the school. But if it's Y, like your family history of having had slaves in the past, they can't think about it. And that got kind of murky. What they're definitely saying is that they should not be sort of tracking the race of the applicants in terms of like, they write down somewhere, or they check a box of what their race is, and then that 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 is taken into account. Okay. And in fact, one of the justices pointed out, that's actually like the common application that's having applicants do that in terms of checking a box. That's not even necessarily the universities. Right. But they clearly think that they shouldn't be sort of tracking it like that. It's be, I think this is one thing I've been thinking about a lot is it's like very hard to say, well, if someone writes an essay about this topic, like, what are they going to do? Not read it if it's about race? Like, that doesn't really make sense. And they sort of right. stopped short of that. And I think, like I said, some of the justices were pushing back on that. Like, and I, I think about it, too, in terms of you list your extracurricular activities. Well, what if that activity is connected with your race? It certainly right. can't be that the university yeah. can't think about that. Like, it's never truly, I don't think, ever going to be able to be literally race blind. I mean, they would have to redact so much out of your application, right? They Which might is really, to, that's almost, that's almost. It wouldn't worse. even make sense depending. I mean, sometimes from someone's name, you might have a sense of what their ethnicity right. is, right. Right? right? So your name, what if a recommender referred to it? What if it becomes clear from some sort of activity you're involved in? What if it becomes clear from sort of an essay? So I don't totally think that the plaintiffs have ever really thought through exactly what they're asking for. I don't know how you would apply to college and be able to hide all of that, but I know what they at a minimum want is they don't want this thing where you sort of check it off and then the universities are sort of tracking and trying to make sure that they're having like rough percentages of different groups. And can I just, can I say something about the plan? I want to say two things right here. One is about the plaintiffs and the other is what you're referring to is that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on this. I think it was the beginning of November, end of October. Something. It was a Halloween. It was October. Halloween. Halloween. But yeah. 
The Students for Fair Admissions, which were the plaintiffs in these cases, is an organization. They also brought the Greider and the Gratz cases, right? Or some version. Of I, I think I don't remember. I think they were involved in it. I mean, they weren't the yeah. named plaintiff. Like they was Grutter was the name. No, no, they found a but, plaintiff. But my yes. point is, there. But this has been an organization that is trying not, to... that their goal is to get yes. rid of affirmative action. Absolutely, but it's not like there's this. You know, and they brought a million cases on this. Yes. It's not like there is this individual who feels wrong. Now there is an individual who argues feels wrong, but. This organization, Students for Fair yes. Admissions, is the one who finds them so that they have standing to bring suit. Right. And in Grutter, you did have like a person who, who was Michigan Law School. She was like, these right. are my grades. These are my LSATs. I should have gotten in. Um, I think with these cases, yeah, it's not about like one particular person. Right. Because right. it's also very, I mean, when you think about like applying to Harvard, very hard for anyone to say like, well, right. I should have gotten into <laughs> Harvard. Gotten right? in, yeah. have an acceptance rate of like 3%. Yeah. Yeah, How can you ever true. show, like, if it weren't for this this thing, I would have gotten in, right? It's that's just true. very hard to ever point to why you didn't get in. But they're saying the entire process of even taking it into account, at least in some sort of explicit way. With Harvard, it would be violates Title VI. And with UNC, it would be violates Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause. And is there anything special because about UNC in particular? You know, there were a couple of cases against the University of Texas a while back where they found plaintiffs. Um, but is there anything, you told me what was special about the Harvard admissions concerns, but was there was there a reason why they, they you know, when I say they, Students for Fair Admissions kind of identified UNC as being- I, I don't know, that's an interesting question. I know that part of their argument is that UNC could be doing more with race neutral policies to try mm -hmm. to achieve diversity. Um, and I think that was part of it, but I'm not, I actually am not okay. sure specifically why they focused on UNC. All right, so so we have these two cases. They come with the backdrop of Grutter, which says you can consider race so long as it's with the goal of having a critical mass. And you heard the oral arguments. What do you think is going to happen? So I think most people think, and I agree, that they are probably going to reverse or at least very significantly scale back Grutter. I think the majority of the justices seem skeptical that this can be done without violating Title VI or the Equal Protection Clause. Um, I think you're going to see a real narrowing. Like I said, though, I still, I do wonder in reality, like, what will that mean? So maybe they'll say right. that, you know, universities should not be asking or taking into account what someone, you know, checks off is their race. But like I said, I'm still not sure really what that's going to mean on a day-to-day -day basis if people are referring to that in their essays in terms of how it shaped them as a person and things like that. Right. Um, I don't know exactly how they can say you can't do that because you have to read everybody's essay. And why would one person's sort of family background, if that's what they write about in their essay, be able to be considered, but not another one. So I'm right. not really sure what ultimate guidance they are going to give to universities, but I think maybe it's going to be at the minimum something like they shouldn't be tracking the racial composition of their class. They're going to sort of have to get rid of all of that. And, but like I said, I still feel like it will be taken into account in other ways based on right. people's essays and things right. like activities and things like that. I see what you're saying. So you're saying like, they're not, that can't be their goal. Their goal can't be a critical mass of diverse voices. If the diverse voices they're seeking to bring in are based in part on race. Well, what do you mean that can't be their 
that the, the, the emissions oh. committees cannot have as their goal this idea of, of trying to create a critical mass. Yes. That's right. what I think may happen. They'll say like, you can't be sort of tracking the racial composition of your class and right. then taking that in, into account when you're looking at applications and sort of making sure that you're hitting the targets that you have. And that was, I remember, a part of Grutter versus Bollinger that the University of Michigan's law school was doing that. They were sort of right. keeping track of how the numbers looked to make sure that the class was shaping up to be a diverse class. Um, and it was sort of turning out to meet their goals. So the idea was clearly they were taking that into account, you know, in terms of trying to make sure that they were hitting what they wanted to hit. I think sort of explicit things like that, the majority is going to say, well, they shouldn't be taking that into account. So, you know, but I still don't, like I said, I still don't know how that won't sort of come. They still won't in some way be aware of it and it won't color their decisions about who to admit. Right. I mean, you know, it's interesting because the reason that affirmative, originally affirmative action came in because of this idea, and I mean, it goes back to what you said is Baki, is this idea that there wasn't enough representation of African-Americans in the medical schools kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the, 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 the theories behind this, and you can correct me, is that people of a, you know, sometimes there is this idea of less adequate educational systems among particular groups. And if the goal is to kind of remedy those who have not had the same academic experience, because maybe they go to, you know, low income school or, or you know, pub, underfunded public school, they could still do that, right? That's Absolutely. They right. definitely can do that. The difference with doing that compared to race is race is something, like we said, that under the constitution triggers strict scrutiny, right? right? So you have to show this is, taking this into account is necessary to achieve a compelling interest. And then under, under Title VI, it just says you can't discriminate, treat differently based on race. Socioeconomic status isn't a characteristic like that. Right. So if a government entity treats people differently based on socioeconomic status, that doesn't trigger strict scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, think about it. Like there are all sorts of ways that socioeconomic status is treated differently. Think about like financial aid and things like that. Right. Like right. in a lot of ways, they're taking into account students socioeconomic status, often for sort of good reasons to make sure like then they're getting the financial aid they need and things like that. Right. None of that triggers strict scrutiny. So, yes, things definitely could they could explicit even after this, suppose they say you cannot be taking race into account anymore. They could still be very explicitly taking socioeconomic status into account. And right. that would not raise the same legal issues. So that's one thing that they may do more of. I mean, I think that already is done to some extent, but they may do even more of that um, if Carter versus Bollinger gets overturned. And I should note, like on the one hand, I said, I still do think that it will be taken into account anyway, because it's just you're looking at the applicant as a whole person. So you're learning right. about them. That being said, there are a number of states which had um, statewide votes to ban affirmative action and things like that. So then their universities stopped doing it. And there was data showing that after they stopped doing it, the percentages of underrepresented minorities did go down. So clearly it did have an effect, even though, right. like I said, I still think it will, I don't think it will be completely excised from the process regardless. Hmm. And do you think this is one of those super controversial cases that they're not going to release the decision till the end of June? Um, 
quite possibly. I mean, that happens a lot. They did hear this kind of early. I mean, they heard it October 31st. Right. So I don't know. But yes, a lot of these cases don't come out until June. Part of that is because, remember, it's not just a majority opinion, but then if there are dissents, like there's like a lot of back and forth that goes on where the majority is circulating and the dissent is circulating and like edits are being made to both and maybe other justices are wanting to write their own opinion. So that can slow things down a lot. Like often the decision is like a compilation of five different, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's a majority, there's a concurrence, there are uh-huh. two dissents and things like that. So that kind of thing can take a long time. And this is clearly an issue that the justices have a lot of opinions about. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because, and I've been, you know, teaching law for a long, long time, but I just always thought that the controversial decisions came out at the end of the term because they just did. But, you know, to your point, those are the con- the, the ones that take the most time to write. That's a really, I'd never thought of it like that. So there you go. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I don't know. I didn't work on the Supreme Court. So I don't, I don't know how much of it is like, we just want to like do that at the end and then be done. <laughs> but I, I also do think it's that these things do take a long time. But that is, I think, why some of the biggest, most complicated decisions take the longest to come out. I don't think it's just that they're all ready, but they're holding them back. I think there really is a lot going on behind the scenes. Hmm. Well, thanks so much. You really, um, it's this is one to watch out for, especially, you know, law students, you're, you're in a um, institution that admitted you. So this will have an impact on future lawyers, our future educational system. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Anytime. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day.